Thank you, Andrew, and our worship team for leading us in that music worship to the Lord. Um, one of my kids last night asked me if I was nervous about today, and I kind of looked with a puzzled look at her, and um, I think it was obvious because I've been out of the pulpit for so long, and I said, well, I'm not till now. At least I said that to myself. Um, but it has been seven weeks, so I've got to get back into a bit of a stride here. And this morning we are beginning a new book that is going to be challenging, at least for me, and perhaps challenging to us all walk of faith with Christ. We're going to begin this morning by reading the first seven verses <clears throat> of Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, would you join me there? Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I know that we're familiar with the deja vu expression, and I have used many, many years ago, but when I come to the start of the book, I have that kind of deja vu feeling or sense, and it traces me back a little bit to the construction years when I was working in that industry, and we had a, a job site prepared, and we're about to start a new house, and there's a huge stack of lumber as we show up in the morning. There's dew on the ground. We put on our nail belts, and there's this mound of lumber and a bare site. And for me, it was kind of an exciting thing because I can envision in a few months' time, something is going to come together. And it's fun looking at it that way, even though we recognize there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. There's going to be some challenges. There's going to be problems we're going to have to figure out and work our way through. But at the end of the day, something positive is going to be accomplished. And that's how I feel when I come to a new book study. Because I realize, looking especially at this book of Romans, what is in store for us. The building that has to be done. There's a lot of subjects here, a lot of doctrines here. There's a lot of practical application that has to be discussed. And there are some challenges here as well. Because not all scholars agree on every point in the book of Romans. And I might say some things that you maybe don't agree with as well. But at the end of the day, as we jump into this book, we can envision, I hope, as believers a magnificent structure of the gospel of God's grace before us. As with the start of any new book study, it is helpful for us to look at some background information, which we're going to be working into the messages for the next several weeks, including this morning. The letter to the church in Rome is considered one of the most essential biblical writings for the New Testament church. And many of our prominent Christian theologians and scholars and preachers down through the ages have commended this Pauline epistle in the highest terms. I want to bring a few of those up this morning. And this is a small caption of those past historians and scholars that have made comments on the book of Romans. And it sets the stage for the magnificence of this work. And as we look at a bare land before us and a pile of lumber, this is what we're going to deal with as we move into this book of Romans. Martin Luther called Romans the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. All of these quotes that I'm going to share here at the beginning, you can find online on the online note sheet if you're interested. John Calvin, again, one of the great reformers, he wrote, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And there, Calvin is envisioning Romans connected with all of the rest of Scripture in some magnificent way. 
The Swiss theologian and commentator Frederick Godet wrote, The Reformation was certainly the work of the epistle to the Romans and that to the Galatians, and it is probable that every great spiritual renovation in the church will always be linked both in cause and in effect to a deeper knowledge of this book. And that, I think, reformation includes every reformation we may experience individually as a believer. In some way, it will be benefited from the study of the book of Romans. A bit closer to our own generation, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and the the man that preceded the pulpit by James Montgomery Boyce, he gives us this view of Romans. There is in the book of Romans that which will delight the greatest logician and hold the attention of the wisest among men. And there is that in the book of Romans that will bring the humblest soul in tears of repentance to the feet of the Savior, will give him the knowledge of the true value of his soul in the light of eternity and a true concept of the dignity of human personality when it has been lifted by the grace of God. John Murray goes further to challenge us with a response to this book. And this comes from his preface in his commentary on Romans. He writes, The epistle to the Romans is God's word. Its theme is the gospel of his grace. And the gospel bespeaks the marvels of his condescension and love. If we're not overwhelmed by the glory of that gospel and ushered into the holy of holies of God's presence, we have missed the grand purpose Of this sacred deposit. When I do a book study, I usually have anywhere from eight to 12 commentaries on my shelf that I go through that assist me and equip me to preach on a book. But as I went through my library back there, I count at least 30, at least 30 on the book of Romans. That tells you how much has been written and and taught and studied from this one book. And it emphasizes the importance this book is to the New Testament church and to the New Testament believer. The quotes that I just gave to you are just a few of the commendations given to us on this book and on the study of Romans. And these commendations likely represent the sentiments or the feelings that most of you have in your study of this book as well. The theme of this letter could probably be expressed in a number of different but similar ways. But at the very heart, this book, its theme, it's about the gospel. You can look at the Corinthians letters, and there's a lot of things in those that are dealing with behavior and problems within the church. The epistles were written for many different reasons, but Romans is almost entirely gospel-themed. It's all about justification by faith. And Paul in this letter has set out to identify and explain the gospel of grace by faith for both Jewish and Gentile believers in the city of Rome. And he did this so that they would consecrate their lives as an acceptable sacrifice to God, Romans 12. And that will encompass the practical portion of this letter. He's going to describe the gospel. He's going to explain the gospel. He's going to bring in other elements of the law in regard to the gospel. And then he will show us how then are we to live as gospel men and women. Why the gospel of justification was so fully amplified by Paul in this particular letter, I think is understood more clearly by some of the background story that is behind the writing of Romans. The letter was most certainly written to the capital of the church in the capital city of Rome. And it states that in verse 7, as we just read. The church was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers, and this is clearly understood by the content of this letter, as Paul writes a lot to Jewish believers. Now, there's some disagreement as to the exact year that Paul wrote Romans, with most scholars landing somewhere between 59 and 54 A.D., Some believe that he wrote Romans toward the end of his second missionary journey, but it is far more likely that Paul wrote this letter at the end of his third missionary journey, which lands the writing of this epistle somewhere around 56 A.D., maybe to 58 A.D. And we see certain clues within this letter that make clear that Paul wrote this letter from the city of Corinth. 
And if you look at chapter 15 and 16, we see evidence of that. And in chapter 16, Paul indicates that it was quite likely that Phoebe was the one that delivered the letter out of the hand of Paul and brought it to the city of Rome, to the church in Rome. Now, with regard to the full gospel presentation and the the fullness of this theme being the gospel itself, chapter 1, as well as chapter 15, tell us Paul had not yet been to Rome. If we had read further in chapter 1, he would have said that several times, that he'd wanted to come to Rome many times, but circumstances had prevented him. He says it again in chapter 15. This tells us that Paul had never been or met these people at this point. This is not a church that Paul had established or planted. And as well, Paul makes clear in chapter 15 and verse 20 that it was his practice never to build on another apostle's work. Paul always wanted to go with the ministry of the gospel where the gospel had not gone before and to build a work there, a gospel work, where the other church leaders or apostles had not worked. So this tells us that the church in Rome was not planted by the other apostles, despite what the Roman Catholic Church says of Peter. None of the other apostles had laid the foundation for this church. So it begs the question, where did this church, where's its roots? How did it start? How was it formed? And if you go back to Acts chapter 2, and you look at the day of Pentecost, there in Acts chapter verses 8 to 10, we read that many foreign travelers had entered the city of Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And it was on that day that the, the Spirit of God descended upon the apostles, fiery tongues, remember. And the apostles began preaching the gospel to those travelers and the people that were coming to the city for that festival were hearing the gospel in their own language or in their own tongue. And it says in that of Acts 2, that people were coming around visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. That means Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. They had gone to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost, heard the gospel. Many became believers. And as Peter preached his first spirit-filled ministry or sermon, it says 3,000 souls came to faith in Christ and were added to the church. It is certain that a good many of those Roman travelers, Roman visitors, had put their faith in Christ as well, and they returned to Rome. And as John Murray writes in his commentary, where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. Where faith is, it seeks the fellowship of the saints. When God comes upon us and opens our eyes to see the gospel, and we receive Christ as our Savior, it will be our supernatural instinct to want to be with other believers. And this is what happened in Rome. These travelers came back with the gospel, and they began meeting and gathering together and adding to this because the gospel was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And we see that even in Paul's three missionary journeys, Christian travelers, businessmen coming from Rome and going back to Rome, merchants and immigrants, They would be settling back to Rome as believers. And this would be kind of the the evolution of the church, evolution used in a positive way here, the growth of the church. And they would come back to Rome and gather with the saints in, in a roughly formed church because, again, Paul was not building this church. The apostles' hands were not in it. But clearly the Spirit of God was present. And without question, word had spread that there was a gathering of believers in the Roman capital. Yet Paul, by his own words, tells us there was no apostolic oversight there, and his missionary journeys, all three of them, had not yet reached Rome at this time, at the time of the writing of this epistle. So from this, we can understand why Paul had a burden to come to Rome and help establish these unguided believers and to lay some kind of foundational work, doctrinal foundation work, to the very church that was growing there. These people had heard the gospel. They had received the gospel. They were continuing in the gospel without knowing the fuller doctrines of grace and without much in the way of practical application. And you can see that in chapter 6 of Romans because these people had received the grace of God. They kind of had an understanding of God's grace, 
But Paul had to say, shall we receive this graciousness of God to forgive sin and yet continue in sin? Heaven forbid, he writes. So he's bringing practical instruction into these believers that didn't have a good hold on the application of the gospel in their own personal walk of faith. So in Paul's very doctrinal mind, since he's not able to reach Rome yet, what the church needed was a thorough instruction on the gospel of justification by faith and how to live in that gospel as believers. Can you get a picture or a sense in why this full doctrinal letter is written? It stands apart from all of Paul's other epistles. He sees a a fundamental need in this gathering of believers. His heart was to go there, but he had not yet been able to. The other apostles hadn't sunk their investment into those believers, that church. So Paul, under the ministry of the Spirit, under the pressing and inspiration of the Spirit, drafts this letter. One author even suggested that since Paul was hoping to take the gospel even further west into Spain, it may have been his intent to build the Roman church up and use it as a base headquarters for his reach further into the west. They needed to be strongly established in the gospel and what that means, gospel living means, as they apply it to their lives. But we also note from Romans that Paul had to deal with the Jewish mindset for believers. How were Jewish believers to reconcile the requirements of the law with the gospel of justification by faith? Now, the earliest church in Rome would have been made up of predominantly Jewish believers. And I think that's hinted at in Acts chapter 2. Estimates have been suggested that from the first century in B.C., there were close to 50,000 Jews in Rome and many synagogues. And so when the church and the gospel entered in and were formed there by the Spirit, it would have been made up predominantly of Jewish believers and perhaps some Gentile proselytes, as it says in Acts 2. However, in 49 A.D., the emperor decided to remove all what he considered the troublemaking Jews out of Rome. So he had Rome stripped of the Jewish element, which would have left the church there predominantly Gentile. When that emperor died, the Jews migrated back to Rome. Nonetheless, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, it is generally agreed that predominantly is now a Jewish church. I'm sorry, a Gentile church with a Jewish element. And hence, we can see the importance of Paul writing on things like Abraham and uh, uh, circumcision and the law. And in verse, or chapters 9 and 11, Paul writes specifically to the Jews there. This was now a Gentile-believing church with the presence of Jewish people there as well, Jewish believers. And this brings us to something of an introduction this morning. This was my preface, by the way. So we're going to look at a bit of an introduction this morning, and I'm starting with the very first word in this letter, which is what? Paul. Paul. And it makes sense, verse 1, in saying what it does, knowing that Paul had never been there, and there wasn't any other apostolic presence, Paul begins with himself by introducing himself to the church. No doubt they'd heard of Paul. His reputation had already gone out, but he's going to introduce himself to these believers at the start of this very doctrinal letter. And what we're going to do in this introduction, in looking at Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We're going to take a bit of the background story where we see Paul coming from persecutor to preacher to pastor, which is what he's going to do with these Roman believers, this Roman church, with this letter. He's going to shepherd them for Christ. Because these Roman believers are not intimately familiar with Paul, he begins this critical letter by introducing himself. And this introduction is important considering what he once was and what Jesus Christ called him to be and to do. The history of the Apostle Paul is truly a history of the sovereign hand of God transforming him from persecutor of the church 
to a preacher of the gospel. And I'm emphasizing strongly what I'm hoping you are also writing in your notes. This is evidence of the sovereign hand of God. I'm emphasizing that because we're going to look at God's sovereign hand in the history of Paul himself. I think it is safe to say that of all the apostles, even all the apostles put together, we have far more background information from Scripture on Paul than we do for all the others. I mean, we know something about the fishermen and the tax collectors and somebody had a mother-in-law. But think about all the 12 apostles. We don't have a lot of background information prior to Christ, prior to Christ calling them into service. But between Acts and Paul's epistles, we have a great deal of history on what Paul was before and after his conversion, including his conversion. Given what God called Paul to be and to do, the Holy Spirit then has directed the New Testament writers to record much for us on Paul, even prior to his regeneration. And this is because, by the words of Paul himself, God was sovereignly at work preparing him for ministry, even before he was saved. And I want you to see this in Galatians chapter 1. Because Paul puts this, this view of God's sovereign hand in his life right here in print for the Galatian churches to see. Galatians 1, beginning at verse 13, follow along with me. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. Paul is talking about his pre-Christ days here. I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh blood. We're most familiar with the man named Saul and his travel to Damascus and that Damascus road experience as was read to us at the beginning of our service. Jesus Christ dramatically interrupted Saul's ongoing torment of the church and believers and the hostility that he was prepared to bring to the believers in Damascus. Jesus Christ interrupted that. He stepped in. It's almost like he brought the hand down from heaven and stopped Paul. The donkey running into that hand, he falls off. He's struck by the glory of heaven and he's blinded. That is a dramatic experience that brought this man to faith in Jesus Christ. But what Paul wants us to is that even before then, even before that Damascus Road conversion, All the way back to the day that he came out of the womb, God was preparing him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. What this means is that even his history, his background as a hater of God, was a time of preparation by the Lord himself. Philippians chapter 3, covered in part by Pastor Dave McAllister just a few weeks ago, Paul describes those days. So we're going to bounce around between Acts and Philippians chapter 3 and even a little bit from Galatians 1 and looking at the history of Paul who's now introducing himself to a church that he's never been to. And we're going to begin here as Paul from the persecutor of Jesus Christ that he was in the beginning. Paul was born a Jew in the city of Tarsus of Cilicia The tribe of Benjamin, Tarsus, was a city that was one of the three epicenters for the Greek culture. So he's immersed now, born into this intensely Greek culture. He's born of the tribe of Benjamin. He's named after Israel's first king, who also, King Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. We read that Saul was intensely uh, passionate about Jewish traditions. He refers to himself in Philippians 3 as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's setting himself apart from all the other Jewish men because it was of his zeal for the traditions, the Jewish traditions. His father was a citizen of Rome, and therefore Saul himself was a natural-born citizen of Rome, which God would later use in Paul's ministry years. That citizenship became a point that God used, and he prepared him for it. 
Saul was raised by a prominent Hebrew family family and was schooled in the Jewish law under the renowned Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. And that kind of prestige carried a lot of clout with him. Saul became a Pharisee, as was his father, Acts chapter 23, verse 6. And this made Paul an expert when it came to Jewish law in his gospel teaching as a believer in Christ. You can see why Paul was one that could bring the gospel and the Old Testament law together in Romans and in Galatians. Because he was, before Christ, an expert in the law. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches that his pre-Christian days was a time of persecuting the church of God beyond measure, even trying to destroy it. He was extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions, and he was advancing in Judaism even more than his peers. Luke tells us that as a young Jew, Saul stood in support of the martyrdom of Stephen. And from there, he just continued to grow more hostile to those who were claiming that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. Saul is traveling house to house, ravaging the church, dragging men and women off, having them imprisoned for their faith in Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Both Luke, in authoring the book of Acts, and Paul, in writing his epistles, records Saul's devotion to Jewish tradition and instruction in the Jewish ways. But this prominent instruction and training would also have required Saul to know the Old Testament scripture. He was an expert in God's word. And this also prepared him for his conversion and his ministry. Prior to the Lord Jesus meeting him on the Damascus highway, Saul did many things to the name of Jesus Christ. And this Saul even confessed to King, King or Paul then, King, uh, expressed to uh, King Agrippa in Acts 26. He was hostile to the very name of Jesus Christ. He brought threats and murders against those who were following the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when the Lord met him on the Damascus Road, and Paul was, or Saul was converted and entered the city, we read in Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, that Paul, Saul immediately began to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So here's the scene. He's heading to Damascus. There is hate on his heart toward Christ and those that follow Christ. He wants to stomp out Christians in Damascus. Jesus interrupts his travel and says, Get up, Saul. I want you to go into the city and I will tell you what you must do. He goes into the city and for three days he's blind. He's in darkness. Ananias is sent to Saul to proclaim the gospel to him and to give instructions to Saul as to what he's supposed to do. And here we see that the Spirit of God comes on this man. He receives Christ as a Savior. He repents. He puts his faith in Christ. He is baptized. His eyes are open physically, but his eyes are also open spiritually to see Christ for who he is. Now, we know that that dramatic Damascus Road experience would have had been a key factor in Saul's conversion. Put yourself in Saul's place. That was a dramatic entrance into the gospel. But we also know that from John chapter 3, for faith to occur, it would require the Holy Spirit's regeneration. For any of us to believe, it requires first the Spirit of God to come And take dead souls and make them alive again. Regeneration. In addition to that, Paul would later write to the church in Rome in chapter 10 of Romans. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? The word of Christ. This tells us that not only that facing Jesus on the Damascus road. And not only hearing the testimony from Ananias. And not only the spirit of God opening up his heart, but the word had to be heard. The gospel had to be heard. And Christ did utter those truths to Paul or Saul. So did Ananias. But think about that Old Testament training. The moment the spirit opened his spiritual eyes to see, can you imagine how those Old Testament scriptures on Messiah came alive to him? 
He saw Jesus that he'd never seen Jesus before. He saw the Old Testament Messiah that he knew so well in his study of scriptures. It came alive to him. And he saw this is the Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ that has been promised. Turn one page back from Romans chapter 1. Acts 28. Here Paul has been led to Rome as a prisoner. This is after his missionary journeys, after he's written this letter of Romans. He's, on a, on, he's arrested back in Jerusalem. He goes to Caesarea, taken to the, uh, Rome. He had a shipwreck. He was saved and so forth. And he's now under house arrest in Rome, waiting to appear before Caesar. Jews are wanting to come from Rome to, to see this guy that they've heard about. But look at verse 23 of Acts 28. When these Jews came, they had set a day aside when they could see Paul. They came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from where? Both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Do you see how God prepared him for that in his pre-Christ days? This man knew the law of Moses. He knew the prophets. And thereafter, Christ met him on Damascus, and the Spirit opened his eyes to see. Those prophets, that law came alive. And Paul used his expertise in the word of God to now preach Christ, the name of Jesus that he tried to stomp out before. This is amazing background of God's sovereign hand working in this man's salvation and his ministry prior to Saul ever coming to faith in Christ. We can well imagine the horror that came over Saul when on that road and laying prostrate on the ground, he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer that Saul heard was, I am Jesus, who you've been persecuting. How many times had that man been trying to stomp out the name of Jesus? And there from heaven, he meets Jesus. And Jesus introduces himself, saying, I am the one, I am Jesus, the very name that you have been persecuting. All this while Saul thought thought he was acting on God's business to stomp out the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Yet in persecuting the church, In persecuting believers, Jesus, you're you're, you're persecuting me. The charge against him from, from heaven was that he was persecuting the Son of God himself. And Jesus continued speaking to Saul, Get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Notice what Jesus says to them there on the road. He doesn't say, you know, Paul, I want you to go away and consider these things. And I hope you choose me. Rather, he says, get up and enter the city, and it will be told what you must do. Jesus later told Ananias, you go to that man, Saul. And Ananias said, wait, this guy's been a troubler to the church. He persecutes believers. And Jesus said, doesn't matter. I have chosen him as an instrument. He's my chosen vessel, and he's going to go to the Gentiles. He's going to go to the kings. He's going to go to the Jews. And he's going to proclaim my name. You go back and reread Acts chapter 9. What John read to us this morning. How many times after that conversion experience. Do we read that Paul was proclaiming what? The name of Jesus. Again and again he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. And when that spirit moment came upon him. And he was baptized and became saved. It says immediately he confessed Jesus following the message that Ananias was commissioned to share with him. He was released from blindness, he was baptized, and he did what? He began to be a preacher of Jesus, from persecutor of Jesus to a preacher of Jesus. And this brings us to our second point, that of the preacher of Jesus, point B on your note sheet. From the moment that the Lord directed Ananias to go to Saul and give him those marching orders, the reader of God's word is very much made aware that Jesus Christ would rule over the life of the Apostle Paul for the rest of his days as the Lord had directed in his earlier years. 
God's sovereign hand was already on Paul before he was a believer. Jesus Christ is now telling Saul, from this day forward, you're going to be acting in my business. I've got a job for you to do. And when the Lord first told Ananias of Saul's arrival, remember, he protested. We shouldn't have anything to do with this guy. He's trouble. He's violent. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, Jesus responds by making Ananias aware of the predetermined will of God for Saul. God had already mapped out where Saul was to go. And this is what the Lord said to him. Go, Ananias. For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And from that moment, Saul began to preach the gospel. He could never look at the Old Testament with the same uncertainty of Messiah. He had met Messiah, or rather Messiah had met him. And in the city, he was told, in the city of Damascus, he was told that Jesus had appointed him for salvation and for serving the Savior. And so Saul wasted no time in proclaiming his name in the streets of Damascus. And after several days, the Jews are concerned. They're saying, this guy's betrayed us. Let's have him put to death. And so the disciples of the Lord take him in a basket and lower him down, and he escapes from Damascus. When he became aware of the threat... And the believers helped Saul escape. It says in scripture that he left the city there. And it's somewhere in this next season of Saul's converted life that he was led by the Spirit into the Arabian desert for three years where he was prepared by the Lord Jesus himself to preach the gospel. I want you to go over to Galatians chapter 1 now and look at verse 11 and 12. Galatians 1 verse 11 and 12. Paul writes to the church as the believers there in the Galatian cities, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying there is that when he went into that three-year desert experience, he wasn't trained in the doctrines of grace by other men. He wasn't trained by the apostles. He received direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And we would, and scholars would see this as Saul's seminary experience. This is where he was raised up in the doctrines that would be critically taught to the church in Rome in this letter. Saul then was escorted to Jerusalem after that Uh, by Barnabas, who interceded for him before the apostles, who were skeptical about Saul because of his history of tormenting the church. But Barnabas took a hold of Saul, introduced him to the apostles, and after the apostles listened to Saul's Damascus testimony, the apostles accepted him into fellowship. The Jerusalem church then sent Barnabas to Antioch to organize the church there. Barnabas sought out the help of Saul to help him with the ministry there in Antioch to help organize the church and minister to the Antioch believers. And it was there that the followers of Christ were first called Christians, according to the book of Acts. Now, the Antioch church leaders received word from the Holy Spirit to commission Saul and Barnabas to do the work that Jesus Christ had sovereignly chosen for Saul to do. That same work that the Spirit of Christ spoke to Ananias about when Saul was converted. It was then that Saul became known as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the historic record of Saul, this is where Paul was commissioned on three missionary journeys. And I'm going to name those for you. These are expressed in words because the three missionary journeys had a certain character or mission to them. The first missionary journey is considered the ministry of exploration. And that's where Paul takes the gospel to places that the gospel had not been heard before. It's kind of like how the Star Trek series years ago started out, going where no man has gone before. This was exploration for Paul, the gospel exploration. And this missionary journey of exploration included Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and it lasted between one and two years. And the chief places that the gospel was preached included Cyprus, Perga, Antioch, Pisidia, a different Antioch, 
Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And during this time, Paul wrote the letter to the Galatian churches. It was his first epistle. He then returned to the sending church in Antioch, Syria. Antioch, the sending church. The second missionary journey is identified as the ministry of expansion. Expansion. And it listed, or lasted for two to three years. And just as the word describes, this is where Paul returned and ministered to a couple of the previous cities, like the church in Lystra and Derby. But he then expanded the ministry of the gospel into territories like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth. On this journey, Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians. The third missionary journey is referred to as the ministry of exhortation. You can see the three E's here. First, exploration. Second, expansion. And now this third missionary journey is a ministry of exhortation, and it lasted three to four years. Three of those years he spent in Ephesus. They returned to Corinth, and they continued to Troas, then they returned to Jerusalem. While he was in Corinth on that third journey, this is where we believe that Paul wrote the book of Romans. Due to the same journey, he wrote First and Second Corinthians. That's certainly not the end of Paul's ministry for the gospel because he wrote several prison epistles and pastoral epistles. But following his third missionary journey, Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem. He would be taken to Caesarea, put on a ship that was to sail to Rome. They got in the shipwreck, landed on the island of Malta, and his life was sovereignly spared so that he would eventually and finally make it to Rome, where he preached the gospel to the household of Caesar, and he would meet many of the Roman believers. Yet prior to his arrest and arrival in Rome, Paul wrote a letter to the church that he'd never been to before and that he'd never ministered to before. And this letter, the Epistle of Romans, would be what many consider to be his most prominent and his most impactful ministry. And this brings us to a third point in this historical progression of Paul from a persecutor of Jesus to a preacher of Jesus to now a pastor for Jesus. He's going to pastor the flock for Christ there in Rome. And this is, what, this is what brings us to the letter itself. And I want to focus the balance of our time this morning on looking at Paul's introduction of himself to the church in Rome, a church that had never met Paul before. And we can see from Paul's history that he moved from one that persecuted Jesus to one that is now preaching the name of Jesus that he once despised. And now he's going to pastor this flock that came under the name of Christ as a gospel people. And it's this pastoral role that finds Paul impassioned to care for the church that belongs to the Lord, even though he'd never met these folks. A church that he once tormented and persecuted is now a church that he is ministering to. And I'm speaking about church in general, not specifically the church in Rome. He persecuted the church in general because he hated the church. He hated the way the people that were following the name of Christ. Now he's shepherding the church, specifically the church in Rome. Paul first lets them know that he's a bondservant of Christ. He then tells them, I was called into the apostolic ministry, and finally he was separated out for the gospel of God. He's introducing himself. This is Paul. Who is he? And Paul puts it in these three categories. We're going to start with Paul who is enslaved to Christ. The term that is used here in our English Bibles is bondservant, bondservant. And in the Greek, it is more actually the word doulos. It means slave. And in this context, the slave was somebody that was owned by another. He acted at the will of another. He was owned by that person. And Paul is saying, I am now owned by Christ. He's my master. I do his bidding. He's telling the church, I am here writing to you as a slave of Christ. He's directing me to look after you, to shepherd you with these words. So prior to Paul's dramatic conversion, he went to the high priest in Jerusalem. He requested official papers authorizing him to go to Damascus and arrest any who were found to be followers of Christ who belonged to that way, the Christian way. And this is where Jesus ended Saul's assault against the church and he issued to Saul new papers. When Saul came to faith in Christ... 
he lost ownership of himself and he became a slave to Christ. And this authorized him to give sacred instruction to the church from the Lord. He became the Lord's bondservant. This is a self-description that Paul uses elsewhere in his epistles. I am Paul, bondservant to Christ. I'm Paul, a slave of Christ. And it lets his readers know from the start that he's under the authority of his master, Jesus Christ. It emphasizes that what he brings to the church in Rome is a direct service to the Lord. It tells the church, I have no hidden agenda here. There's nothing in secret being done. I want you to know I'm doing this for a redeemed people because I'm a redeemed man. I'm owned by somebody, as are you believers. The very term itself indicates that Paul saw himself as the property of Jesus Christ, where he once opposed the Savior. Now the blood of Jesus has purchased Paul out of sin and made him a slave to the righteousness of Christ. And does that message not come clearly across in Romans 6? That's why Paul is writing here at the beginning, I'm a slave to Christ. I once was a slave to my sin. Christ rescued me. He purchased me or redeemed me with his blood. And in a sense, when Paul is writing about bond slave or bond servant, he's telling these believers, I'm on the same page as you folks. Yes, I come with apostolic authority, but I'm no different than any of the rest of you. I'm a slave to Christ. His blood redeemed me, purchased me. I'm now stamped as his own. Nonetheless, even though Paul was an apostle and he had the authority entrusted to him, he's saying to these people, I'm no different than you. I'm a slave to Christ. So he's introducing himself as a bondservant, letting the Roman church know that Paul's principal ministry here is to serve. I'm a bond slave. I'm here to serve, to serve the Savior and to serve the others in the name of Christ that belong to Jesus that have also been redeemed by his blood. Paul's position as the apostle to the Gentiles would in no way be done as a means to advance his own prominence or greatness or to gain honor or glory for himself. And you contrast that with a particular religion today that claims that its leaders are apostles. And note how they promote the glory of those apostles who are not apostles at all. Paul is an apostle. He had a very different mindset. Even though he was one of the 13 major leaders of the early church, how does he introduce himself? I'm a slave to Christ. Jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to see this is how Paul envisioned his slavery to Christ. This is how he saw himself as a servant. False apostles had entered into the church in Corinth. And Paul was having to expose them for who they are. Down in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, he throws out the question, which he says is a foolish statement even to make. Are they servants of Christ? It's insanity, he says. I am more so a servant of Christ. But how does he describe that servitude? Listen to his description. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received Jews, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, apart from such external things. There's the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches who is weak without my being weak. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That's a description of the mighty apostle to the Gentiles who regarded himself as nothing more than a slave to Christ. And what does this slave do? He's saying, I'm here to serve. And this is what service looks like. Does it make you want to join on the team of Christ? 
Well, Paul wouldn't trade that life for anything. For him, it was an honor to serve the master. I'm owned by him. I'm serving him. He wasn't in this for glory or for his personal honor. And as Paul came to Rome by letter, he introduces himself as being a slave to Christ with the primary role of serving the needs of those fellow believers who also were redeemed by the blood of Christ and his cross. And his service would be marked by toil, hardship, and suffering. Paul is saying, first and foremost, I'm a slave to Christ. Second, he says, I have been called into apostleship. And this is the second identification that Paul gives to the Romans of himself, that of an apostle that has been called into that office by Jesus Christ. Now, the visible evidence of this calling is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. As Saul was confronted by the resurrected, the glorified Christ, he was called into service as the Lord spoke through the prophetic word of Ananias. That was his calling, and it's visible for us to see. We just open up Acts chapter 9. We can read about that calling, and it was a dramatic calling. He strikes Saul down on the road to Damascus, And he says, get up now, Paul, go to uh, Damascus. I'm going to show you what I've called you to do. I'm going to show you the ministry that I'm giving to you. For you're going to be a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Here, the word apostle means a messenger or one who is sent out. This is Paul's calling right there in Acts 9. And in this sense, all believers are apostles in that we have been sent out by our Lord to proclaim the gospel message of hope. But Paul was called into a particular role, as were the other 12 apostles. In Acts chapter 1, it says a true apostle is one who has witnessed the resurrection Christ. The resurrected Christ was visible to the 12 apostles. And that's why when Judas stepped out or was was let out of the, the, the 12, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. He was considered for that office, remember, because he had traveled with Jesus and the other 12 disciples and he had witnessed the resurrected Lord. Additionally, Matthias in Acts chapter 1 was one of the two men being considered for that 12th man position, but he was chosen by Christ himself. Acts chapter 1, verse 24, and that by the drawing of the lottery. Paul also, on the road to Damascus, he was chosen specifically by Christ. He was appointed by Christ, named by Christ for this apostolic ministry, this apostolic role. And indeed, he saw the resurrected Christ, which qualified him to be one of the apostles. That's one of the base qualifications to be an apostle of Christ, to hold that office. You had to see the resurrected Lord. In addition to that, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul goes on to write that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you all with perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. So what validated that those 12 men were apostles? What validated Paul that he was a 13th apostle? It's that they were given by Jesus Christ the power to perform signs and wonders and miracles. It asks the question, I think it begs the question, why did Jesus perform so many miracles during his time on earth? Oh, I can say certainly it identified him as God, right? But secondly, how important those miracles were to connect Jesus, son of God, with his special emissaries, these messengers declared to be his apostles. We could look at the apostles' miracles and we see... That's Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, he did that. Jesus conveyed that ministry to them, confirming them as chosen for this divine role. So that divine quality would validate that these men came with a special revelation of truth. They came with the authority to preach this message from the Lord. They were sent out by Christ to proclaim truths that he, Christ, directly revealed to them. And believers in cities like Rome could know from these signs that the apostles were sent by God with a message of divine truth because they displayed that divine power. Now, while Paul had not yet been to Rome, no doubt in delivering this letter, these Roman believers had already heard of Paul. 
he had a pretty extensive testimony by the time this letter reached Rome. In contrast to being a bondservant of Christ with equal worth as the Roman believers, Paul's apostleship was a credential of divine authority that gave him the right to teach them and direct their Christian walk of faith. What Paul was writing to the church in Roman was then to be received as the very word of God himself. What Paul gave in this letter, those Roman citizens were then to receive as the word of God himself. Why? Because Jesus Christ had called Paul to be an apostle. He was sent out by Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote about his apostolic authority to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted that word, not as or for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. Paul could boldly remind the church of his authority to speak on behalf of Christ because he knew that God had given him that word of truth for the church. So he's not boasting here. Well, if he is boasting, he's boasting in Christ who gave him that word. Now, you and I, are, we don't have that kind of apostolic authority to be sure. And I don't want to give pretense that we do. But the principle of God's authority is still present in every word from Scripture that you and I may speak to each other. If we come alongside and we're handling the word of Christ carefully and accurately, and we share that word with somebody that needs to hear it or somebody that needs to obey it, that word should be received by us commoners as what it really is. And what is it? It's the word of Christ. It carries that authority. Now, again, I'm not an apostle in that big A sense. But I am a messenger. We're all, if we're a believer here, a messenger sent out to proclaim the truths of Christ. And if we're accurately handling that word and we come alongside another believer and we're sharing that word, it carries the authority of Christ himself. And that's going to require sometimes that we look beyond the messenger because we can get irritated if we tell each other what to do. And it does matter how we do that, for sure. But if we're accurately handling the word of truth, it carries the authority of Christ himself. Paul could write this great doctrinal letter of instruction to a church he had never been to because he was commissioned by the Son of God to pass on God's word to them. And the church in Rome would then be accountable to Christ for receiving that word. Paul was called by Jesus for this reason. He was called as an apostle. And third, it says he was separated or set apart for the gospel. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We are most accustomed to speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here, Paul reminds us that the gospel is the good news of the entire Godhead. It is the gospel of God. And this would be of especially important credential for Paul to share with the church since the presence of Jews had to be dealt with. And he had to bring up the subject of another word from God, namely the law of Moses. Paul was about to teach the Jews in that congregation that the law could not be properly understood apart from the fuller revelation of God's gospel word. The gospel is from God himself, ever bit as much as the law of Moses. The word of the gospel would hold far greater importance and meaning to those who belong to God because the word of the gospel was and is God's own word. And the one that's conveying that message is God's own son, Jesus Christ. John reminds us of this in the opening words of his gospel record. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14, And the word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul was delivering to the church in Rome the good news that came from God himself. And it's because this gospel was of God that Paul also identifies himself to this church as one that is set apart or separated for the gospel. But separated from what? Now, in a general sense, 
Paul was separated out from anything contrary to the gospel and his calling to proclaim it. Anything that set itself against the gospel and his calling to proclaim it, this is what he's saying, I'm separating myself from. It's why he could look back at his former life with all of his credentials, his zealousness, his education, his high standing, his position, his devoted Pharisee credential. And he could write in Philippians chapter 3, whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now we previously have seen That God's sovereign hand was at work in this life of this man, Saul. His schooling, his education, his status, his knowledge of the Old Testament scripture, all were things that God was sovereignly working to prepare Saul to be Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul had separated himself from all that was gained to him then, surrendering all that he was to Christ. Paul separated himself then from self-gain, self-importance, self-will. He was now a slave to do the will of the Lord. And whatever skills he had, like tent making or, or education or his expertise in the law, the Old Testament scriptures, whatever God had equipped him with, no longer were they to be used for his own gratification. He was set apart from that. All that he has, all that he was, all that he'd accomplished were surrendered now to the Savior, to the Master. He left behind self-service to serve the true king for the rest of his days. Paul was once a Pharisee, and the the, the term Pharisee actually means set apart one or separated out. But that mark of separation was for Saul a matter of fleshly pride. He set himself apart as a Pharisee to be recognized for his distinction self-achievement. Now in writing to the church in Rome, he set apart from that to proclaim the grace of God through the faith in Jesus Christ that he now possessed. Paul viewed himself as set apart as a gospel man, one that was committed to preach the gospel, but one that was also committed to live that gospel life. Paul wrote the book of Romans to teach the church the same reality for every true believer, what it means to embrace the gospel, what is the gospel, and how to live that gospel. We are to be gospel men and women, those who proclaim the gospel, because we are those who are living the gospel. Now, very quickly, I just want to do a wrap-up and a conclusion here. I know the hour is gone. The opening verse in Paul's letter to the believers in Rome begins with an introduction of himself to this church that he'd never met before. He wanted these believers to know that he's now enslaved to Christ, he's appointed to an apostolic office, and he's been set apart to preach the gospel of God. And while these descriptions are unique to what the Lord had anointed Paul to do, these same descriptions have a very real application in our lives. So as we prepare for the study of this book, is going to teach. Romans teaches, number one, God's sovereignty over my history. God is sovereign over my history. What Paul said of himself is equally true of every believer. In Galatians 1.15, it teaches that God has sovereignly set us apart from birth. And even before the foundations of the world were laid for our redemption, our salvation, We've been called by his grace and for his purposes. And the Lord brings us to himself when he pleases and he uses our past experiences prior to Christ to accomplish his will for our lives. The abilities of the past that once served self and selfish desires can now be and should now be used for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. In other words, the things of the past can still be used. I want to bring up a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones who's writing on this particular text in Romans. And Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point. Do not let the devil tempt you into thinking that all your natural gifts are valueless and useless. You've used your life personally in your old life or you've used your personality in your old life. God wants to use it now in the new life. You used your gifts in your old life, in your business, and in your sin. The same gifts can now be used in your Christian witness, in your Christian deportment. We all have gifts. Let us therefore hand them back to him that he may use them. 
We have abilities. We have gifts. We have resources. We use them for selfish pleasure before now in Christ, like Paul. We use those to serve the king. That's Paul's testimony. God had prepared him from birth for what he was to become once he was born again. Second, Romans teaches us God's service in marking my life. This is what Romans is going to teach us. God's service marking my life. This is where the idea of a slave to Christ comes from and where it leads us to. I believe this is where we have much to learn in age. There's much room for growth in the life of modern believers. When we come to faith in Christ, we do not always live as those who've been marked out for service to Christ and to do his will. And I think it can be said of many Christians that we continue to serve our own interests, but now with kind of a Christian flavor. We're not all going to be called into full-time service for Christ as with Paul and the other apostles. In fact, most of the people that the apostles, including Paul, ministered to remained in their secular lives, their secular jobs. They didn't all go into full-time ministry. So what this letter will call us to do is to present our bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God so that everything we do, we do for him and because of him. Our jobs, families, our investments, our pursuits in life must all be done, as it says in Romans 12, as a spiritual service of worship. What we do, what we do for his, or what we do, we do for his advantage, and we do to honor his name. We come to faith in Christ. We are made at once a servant to his will. And therefore, as Romans 12 verse 2 continues, do not be conformed to this world Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And third, Romans teaches us God's separation for his gospel. We have been set out, set apart, put separately from the world and from our former lives. What this will mean for us then is that we are to separate ourselves out to proclaim and to live the gospel of God. We are set apart from anything anti-gospel and we're now to live as gospel men and women. Our lives have got to be separated out so that we are known to be pro-gospel. Paul is going to show us how that looks and how we do that in this letter to the Roman church. Father in heaven, as we begin this journey together, in this new book, in this new study. Would you lead and direct us by your will? Show us the things that we must understand more fully. Enlighten us in the things we don't know. And Father, above all, lead us in a way, lead us in a practical way so that we live our lives before the world in a way that glorifies your Son, that honors your good name, and that promotes the work of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.